All right. Another little detour today from Mark. Um, again, chapter 12, where we're in the chapter 11, chapter 12, Mark. It kind of goes together, the beginning of chapter 12, all this parable. So we'll hopefully jump back into that next week. But today, our passage was read by John from James chapter 3. You can tell it's a very fun chapter, very fun passage. About the tongue. But I believe um, it's safe to say, if you're familiar with the book of James, that his one of his major aims in that book is to highlight or demonstrate genuine faith. What does genuine faith look like? Maybe to answer the question, what kind of life does Christianity produce? Now, as always, if we're going to talk about something like this, a very practical side of Christian faith, I always want to be careful and make sure that we try to look at what the Bible says is genuine Christian faith and not just what we all think it should look like or what we've decided people should look like and how people should live because um, there's a lot of that. I don't want to be legalistic, but um, we want to be encouraged and we know that we're all going to fail these laws that are given to us, but we are instructed to love them and to keep them. And so um, sometimes it's a good thing for us to look at stuff like this, just a very practical side of Christian faith and know how we're to walk and and be encouraged, not that we're failures, but that Christ is a great redeemer and a great savior. And in Christ, um, we have hope and we can do these things um, with the help of Christ. And even when we fail, we still are loved by him and we don't get kicked out of the family, which is wonderful news, right? And so on Wednesday nights, we're actually in, in this topic of sanctification. And so what I thought I would do before I get into the rest of this is just read to you real fast what our confession, the 1689 Confession, says about sanctification because I'll probably come back to it. This is so important. Those who are united to Christ and effectually called and regenerated have a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the power of Christ's death and resurrection. They are also further sanctified really and personally personally through the same power by his word and spirit dwelling in them the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed and the various evil desires that arise from it are more and more weakened and put to death now that's some good news right there some things are destroyed instantly maybe but for the most of us most of our sin is more and more weakened right we don't just wake up one morning i mean we've been born again praise the lord we don't wake up one morning and sin is gone And uh, no longer do I struggle in my flesh. So it's more and more weakened and put to death. At the same time, those called and regenerated are more and more enlivened and strengthened in all saving graces so that they practice true holiness, which without which no one will see the Lord. This sanctification extends throughout the whole person. All right, so we're going to be looking at mostly only the tongue today. It covers that too. Though it's never completed in this life, sanctification, Uh, It does cover the whole person. Some corruption remains in every part of us. But from this arises a continual irreconcilable war with the desires of the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, right? We've talked about it on Wednesday nights, but we're all familiar with that if we're Christians. We know about this irreconcilable war that's in our flesh that we feel waging against the spirit, a war. In this war, the remaining corruption may greatly prevail for a time. 
Hey, here's some more good news. It may prevail for a little while. You may be wondering, why can I not overcome this? What is the deal? I see other people doing better than me. What is my problem? Yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part overcomes. So there's the hope. Hey, the regenerate part is going to overcome. So the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. They pursue a heavenly life in gospel obedience to all the commands that Christ as head and king has given them in his word. I just think that's so wonderfully written. Uh, I, would, I would be amiss not to mention it in a sermon about uh, a specific uh, part of our body that we need to learn to control. And especially thinking about this, what kind of life does Christianity produce? Because that's what James' aim, at least one of his aims, is in his whole book. Because Christianity is a life of trials and a test of endurance, right? Trials that push us to Christ, though, to trust him more. Trials that push us to Christ to find wisdom during these trials. You'll find all this in the first two chapters of James. A life that calls the rich not to trust in their riches and the lowly not to be discouraged by his humility. It's a life produced by the word of God, conceived by the will of God. That's our Christian life. And therefore, it ought to be a life submitted to the word of God. We talked about this Wednesday night, how much better and how much more power we see in living our lives the more we're in the word of God. And we're actually reading because from that word comes by the spirit comes the power for us to live this life. Um, A life that is to be, as James says, swift to hear the word and slow to speak the word and slow to wrath. Because as he says, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God, right? James is just sometimes too practical, right? You're you're reading through that and you don't get out of the first chapter and you're like, oh my gosh, uh, this is not very good. But um, it is good. It's a life that does not show partiality, according to James. You neither favor the rich nor the poor, right? You don't befriend befriend those who you think will benefit you and ignore those you can't benefit from. This is James' point. It's real... um, it's a real look at how not to show partiality. You don't show partiality. You don't stop showing partiality by being partial to another group, right? This is why the gospel will never support something like uh, the social justice movement, because that teaches okay. Some people have been discriminated against. Now we're going to turn that around, discriminate everybody else in order to give them. No, the Bible says no. Discrimination is wrong across the board. We don't discriminate for either, any reason. Right against people. We don't show partiality is really the word James uses. So, the Christian faith is a faith in Christ, and it produces good works. We can't argue that because the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2, for example, we were created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And we've been looking at Ezekiel in chapter 36 where he's prophesying about the new covenant, and God promises in the new covenant, I will put my spirit in you and make you to walk in my statutes. So there's these great promises from Scripture that the Christian life does produce the works that God made us to produce. And they are righteous and good only because they proceed from God, though, right? So we're never able to stop and turn around for even an instant and look and say, well, look how good I'm doing. Man, I'm doing pretty good, not like everybody else around me. No, if there's good works producing you, they are a result of Christ. And I think James would agree with that. All that is good comes from God, especially since the Bible says there's none good talking about humans. No, not one. So anything good comes from God. And I think James even says every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. 
So our text today, obviously I've already mentioned it, but brings us to perhaps one of the greatest testaments of the works of God's righteousness within a true believer and follower of Christ because it suggests that maybe one indicator above most indicators that a person belongs to Christ is how his tongue is roped in, right? That's kind of the way I see chapter 3 when you read that, like you would put a bridle in a horse's mouth and you can tame him, turn him every which way. But James said, of all the creatures that's ever been made, the one creature that's impossible to tame is the human tongue. One aspect of human design that demonstrates seemingly that we are born again or not. And I know at times it comes and goes like everything else but our tongue. How we speak to one another, right? Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples when you love one another. So we have to speak to one another in a good way. And how we talk, the language we use, the demeanor of our speech. That's why James said, be swift to hear, slow to speak. Right? It's such a vital issue for James. In fact, he mentions the tongue at least one time in all five chapters of this book. So it's a pretty big deal. In chapter 1, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Several times in chapter 2, uh, if you say to the rich, sit here, or say to the poor, go over there, be my footstool, you've made distinctions with your mouth and with your tongue. Verse 12 of chapter 2, so speak and act as those who will be judged under the law of liberty. What good is it to say you have faith but have no works? What sa- You say you have faith, I show you my faith by my works, James says. Then we read chapter 3, chapter 4. It says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Boasting is evil. And then even in chapter 5, do not grumble and do not swear. You can't do either of those without your mouth, really. I guess you can do it in your mind, but they eventually come out of your mouth. So the book of James, which is a book about genuine Christian faith, seems really intent on holding up, especially this juxtaposition with our speech and our faith. Because they go hand in hand, perhaps like nothing else. Now, we have to be careful because I know that some people can fake it with their mouth and their lives don't show it. And I think that's kind of what James is talking about too. Hey, the tongue is important and what comes out of it matters. But if what comes out of it is not reality of what you are and who you are, that's not good either. But I know in my own life, um, I see this played out. In, in a lot of ways, and a great truth played out in a lot of ways. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So what's inside comes out, and unfortunately for us, it comes out of our mouth, and a lot of times some of us are better at taming that than others, or the Lord has tamed that for us better than others for whatever reasons. But in my personal life, I'm often alerted to how much time I'm spending in or neglecting the Word of God or being in the Word of God or studying or spending time, however you want to say that, with the Word by my speech, how I talk to those, especially uh, the kind of words I'm using, the kind of attitude I have towards people, especially the people that I love the most, right? (coughs) Colossians 4 and 6 says, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Sometimes the Holy Spirit, I think, lets me hear my own words. And it's then that my soul takes account of my speech because it's not with grace. And again, especially when I speak harshly or 
uh, an unbecoming way toward those I love the most and I care about the most. If you did a simple word search throughout the scriptures, you'll find that God, um, not just through James, but through almost every prophet in the scriptures, has something to say about our tongue and our speech. It's very important to God. Again, like Jesus said, our speech erupts from our being. So whatever in our heart is what comes out of our mouths. In fact, the Hebrew mind, the mouth is the window to the soul. And I don't think this is a secret to any of us, right? You can be around somebody for a few minutes and hear them talk and you kind of get an idea of how much you want to spend time around this person, right? Just by the way they talk, you can tell if their words are with grace or if they're not. A window to the soul, perhaps. A great indicator of depravity. You remember what Romans 3 said about those who are lost without Christ, both Jews and Greeks, under sin. None is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then this description, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So sometimes it may do us well just to take inventory. Man, am I sounding like that? Am I sounding like Romans 3.13? Because that's the way lost people are supposed to sound. Is my throat an open grave? My tongue deceitful? You remember when Isaiah found himself in the presence of the Lord? One of the first confessions that he made was what? I'm a man of unclean lips. He recognized in the presence of God that he had a lying tongue, you know. That the words that come out of his mouth were not good because they reflected his heart. We're even told in uh, the Proverbs that God hates a lying tongue. But then we hear these good words. But a wholesome tongue is a tree of life. The mouth of the just brings forth wisdom. And Peter even said, For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips, that they speak no guile. I think the, the uh, proverb that we read might have said something about uh, in, the, in the tongue is the power of death and life, right? Now, a lot of people have abused that and think they have ability to create things because their tongue has the power of death and life, but it really is just demonstrating that with our words we can do a lot of damage or we can do a lot of good. And the good news is we've all been there, some of us, We've seen the Lord clean up our speech. We've seen others that were foul-mouthed and God cleaned their speech up. Their curse words replaced with uplifting words, salty words of grace. But it's true, we can't separate what we say from who we are. I like the way James put it. A, a, a fountain can't come forth with salt water and fresh at the same time. It's one or the other. We see this around us all the time, right? In our world, it's almost um, become expected that people are liars, right? Especially uh, around elections or politicians at a high level. I mean, uh, whenever the, the representative of the White House comes out to speak, it's just a matter of minutes before this many lies, that many lies, or the State of the Union address minutes later. 
how many things were truthful, how many things were almost truthful, right? Uh, and it's really that way with almost any of them. It's expected that they're not telling the truth, right? And we're trying to dig through it and find what's true and what's a lie. And so we need to be careful that um, in the church that's not so because we are commanded of God to be different than that. We are commanded to speak the truth in love. But we are commanded to speak. We shouldn't be silent when things need to be said. But we ought to be slow to speak, quick to listen, and hear what God has to say. In fact, in this chapter 3 of James, beginning verse 1, he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. I think it's interesting that this is the chapter he talks the most about the tongue. In the chapter that he's talking about those who would open their mouths to teach the word of God. And he says, be not many masters, which is a word used all throughout the New Testament for those who teach the word of God, much like what I'm doing right now. Now, of course, when this was written, there was, the New Testament was still being written, but it's obvious that God is speaking through James to say, hey, those who would teach the gospel, those who would teach in my church, they need to be careful. Don't run to this hastily. Your judgment will be greater. It's not to say don't be a teacher, don't desire to be a teacher, because there's another place that says that's a good thing to desire. But we ought to pursue it with caution. Again, because the tongue is a hard thing to, say, to tame. Preachers can often get themselves in trouble with their tongues. It's one of the reasons I preach from a manuscript to rein my own self in so I don't just run off and chase whatever. Sometimes I still have to be careful not to do that. But I think it's important that we pay attention to this very carefully because the tongue is a hard thing to tame. Pursue teaching and using your tongue very cautiously. Horses and ships and every kinds of birds and creatures can be tamed, but no man can tame the tongue, James says. But God can. And that's good news. This restless evil tongue, full of deadly poison, a small spark that can burn down an entire forest. We definitely need to be constantly surrendering that instrument to God, right? Lord, take my tongue and use it wisely if I'm going to instruct others, if I'm going to love others and be an example of Christ. It's a warning. A lot of what's jacked up and messed up in the church today is neglecting this principle of being cautious. Don't just throw people... You know, I come from a tradition where if I could, I could walk up one Sunday, I mean, this happened to me. Hey, I feel like the Lord's calling me to preach. And next Sunday, I'm in a pulpit preaching. I have no idea what I believe really, what I can say, what I could do. And I know that's still uh, the way a lot of people do that. But I've seen a lot of young men especially then get thrown into being a pastor. And they're not anywhere near ready. They haven't even been given this warning. Hey, I'm thankful that you feel like the Lord's calling you to preach. Um, the Bible warns you to be very cautious in this. This is a very serious undertaking. Be certain. A little bit of teaching, a little bit of training, right? 
There's a lot of skillful orators, a lot of men who have articulate speech. But it seems there be to be more, fewer and fewer men who recognize the weight of talking about these eternal things and the weight of eternal life and the weight of words and eternal bound sinners. We need to uh, eternity bound sinners. We need to be cautious about this. I've been all over the place with this in thirty years of ministry. I. I think back and wish I had had a lot of things done differently for me. I learned trial by fire, kind of, you know. Um, and sometimes that's good, sometimes it's not. But I don't ever remember being warned about this. Hey, be cautious. As a preacher, as a man who opens the word, don't run to this hastily. But the good news for all of us, as I've already said, Jesus was the only man who ever tamed his tongue perfectly. And never stumbled in his speech. What he said was perfect. Even when he was angry, he could speak perfectly and not sin. We definitely need men who can rightly divide the word and men and women who can hear the word. And all of us have to learn together to tame this unruly member of our bodies, this tongue. As James said, you don't want to curse, use the same mouth to curse God and bless Him. It shouldn't be that way. Tongue brings to light what's in the heart. Our words are important. The more I stand and do this week to week, the more I recognize how important they really are. I mean, I need to take time to think about the things I'm saying to you. I don't want to just be filling the spot, right? That's why we do, when we put music in our books, we try to make sure that music is good and solid and says something that matters. The things we say and the things we allow to come out of our mouth matters. Bill Spurgeon had something to say about this. It's a good way to end it. How can you serve the Lord with your lips if you do not serve him with your lives? How can you preach the gospel with your tongue with your, when with your hands and feet and heart you're preaching the devil's gospel and setting up an antichrist by your practical unholiness. I Spurgeon. <laughs> he, never, he never skirts around stuff. It's pretty straight. But again, at the end of the day, I want to remind you of this. Our tongues are part of the sanctification process. And the words that we use, the way we talk to each other, the things we <coughs> refrain from saying, all those are part of this um, ongoing more and more being enlivened in the sin more and more being deadened and put to death in our lives so don't be discouraged by this just read this chapter in James and be encouraged knowing that this is what Jesus died for it's part of what he died for was so our speech would be seasoned with salt you can't just decide to be this way but God by his spirit can make us this way and that's our hope right that's our hope Let's pray together. Father, we love you and thank you for your word. And I do thank you for um, the fact that we have a word from God and we have proof that words are good and the things that are said are good. And so help us uh, in our daily lives. We recognize this is part of sanctification. We recognize that apart from you, uh, our words will still be like they were in Romans chapter 3. 
But God, help us to be um, considerate of our, our words and those around us and the way that we communicate day to day and season us with the grace and make our words salty so that they're flavorful and they're preserving all the things that salt can be. We love you and thank you for Jesus most of all. And we know that um, we have what, what a great example we have in him who never reviled back at those who reviled him. But like a lamb was led to the slaughter, dumb, never saying a harsh word, but praying to you, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so, God, I pray that you would help us um, rest in Christ and trust in him to make even our speech as it should be. In Jesus we pray.